Well, it was awesome. It was January 30th of the year 2000. And like most of America and probably all of St. Louis, I had gathered with friends in the home that had the biggest TV to watch the Super Bowl. It was, uh, for people in St. Louis, remembered as the year that St. Louis, whose team was nicknamed the greatest show on turf, won the Super Bowl. For most of St. Louis, uh, which I hadn't moved to yet, by the way, uh, the moment that was most remembered was Mike Jones tackling Kevin Dyson at the one-yard line to seal the St. Louis victory. And yet for all the anticipation and all of the, the drama that was on the field that day, the drama that I remember most, the, the, the thing that got the guys I was watching this with most fired up was a halftime commercial. It was the world premiere movie trailer for the Academy Award-winning film Gladiator. Mixing football scenes with action scenes from the movie perfectly matched with the rock anthem you could not get out of your head. The announcement of this coming attraction did exactly what it was meant to do. It left us in awe of the scene we had just witnessed and eagerly anticipating what was to come. That's what a movie trailer is for. And I mention that because that's also what Advent is for. Advent, the season that we're in that leads up to Christmas, is a season of anticipation. Uh, uh, these past few weeks, we've been looking at passages from the Old Testament uh, that serve sort of like movie trailers, as, as previews of a coming attraction uh, seen in the figure of the angel of the Lord. And so this last Sunday of Advent, we're going to take one last look at an Old Testament scene that helps us see what people were anticipating that arrived after that first Advent, in that, that first Christmas, and, and what we can anticipate at Christ's second coming and his return. It's here in the book of, of Zechariah, chapter 3. Uh, you can find it in your pew Bible, beginning on page 1,474. This is the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree declares the Lord Almighty. That's the scene. 
That's the trailer, so to speak. And so, so what do we make of it? What do we see in here? Well, we see a vision given uh, to the prophet Zechariah, one with more details than we can cover in one sermon. But in it, we see a vision that's essentially a short story, pregnant uh, with meaning. And like any other story, there's a plot. And in the plot of this story, we see three things. We see a problem, we see a solution, and like any great story, we see a plot twist. So, what's the problem? Well, it's what we see as the scene unfolds in verse 1. The scene is of a heavenly courtroom. The defendant, Joshua, the high priest of God's people, the one who in his priestly duties would represent all of God's people. And standing before him, the angel of the Lord, like a judge presiding over a courtroom. Standing to Joshua's right, where the courtroom usually places the prosecutor, is Satan, the accuser. In a sense, it's, it's a redundant statement, what I just said, because as some of you know, the word Satan means to accuse in, in Hebrew. As a name, Satan means the accuser. Verse 1 could just as easily be translated, the accuser standing at his right side to accuse him, or Satan standing at his side to Satan him. That's what Satan does. That, that's his M.O. And while we might think of him you know, more in terms of a tempter, because he does tempt, his primary strategy, baked right into his own name, is to accuse. He is the villain of the story, the accuser par excellence. And he's got a lot to accuse Joshua of. In verse 3, we read that Joshua stood before the angel of the Lord dressed in, quote, filthy clothes. And let me tell you, that's the sanitized version of it. Old Testament scholar Charles L. Feinberg noticed that uh, the word translated filthy here is, is actually the strongest expression in the Hebrew language for filth of the most vile and loathsome character, like saying his clothes were covered in raw sewage. And so he stood, filthy. And, but it wasn't because of something simply outside of him, but actually inside of him. We read in verse 4 that the filthy clothes were symbolic of sin, what we might call the pollution of sin, a sin that made him no more presentable before God than literal filthy garments would make him presentable to do his holy priestly work before a holy God in his holy temple. And that condition is what Satan was ready to pounce on. You can just imagine what it would be like to be in that situation, standing before others, unclean, ashamed, feeling exposed with your accuser standing by. But maybe it doesn't take that much imagination. It's true that uh, Joshua did bear the mantle of the priesthood, uh, which had fallen into to disrepute. Uh, the priesthood, a lot of the priests, had become corrupt. And many of God's prophets had denounced them for this over the years. And yet, that alone was worthy of Satan's accusations. And yet, the high priest, as the high priest, wasn't just standing there representing himself or simply representing the priesthood. The priest, by nature, represented all of God's people. They come bearing not simply their own sins, but the sins of all of God's people, which, which means this isn't just a picture of what Satan once did or might do. It's, it's a picture of what he always does to God's people. 
See, the problem portrayed here isn't simply that Joshua faced something or what Israel faced. It's actually portraying what we all face. Because this isn't just Zechariah's story. This isn't just Joshua's story. This is our story. All of humanity, since the Garden of Eden, uh, has dealt with the same problem, the problem of sin. We see it in our own desires to be our own lords by defining right and wrong for ourselves, uh, by justifying whatever our own ways happen to be. We see it in our desires to be our own saviors, uh, to meet our deepest longings through the things that God prohibits, uh, doing things that turn others into simply a means to our own ends. And as a result, there is no shortage of things for the accuser, Satan, to accuse us of as well. Uh, imagine, if you will, that, that since the moment that you were born, an invisible recording device has been accompanying your every moment. Every thought, every word, whether vocalized or not, was given voice in the recording. Every deed that you have done recorded in high-definition video and captured for posterity. And the day that you learn about this is the same day that you realize uh, that uh, the entire full-length video of your life is going to be played for others. Not a limited screening, but coming soon to every streaming device, even without a subscription. Who among us, before this hit Netflix, wouldn't want to make sure that only a highly edited version was ever seen, so that nobody would know how often we've railed at that next driver for that horrible thing that they did, and then how many scenes afterwards we go and do the exact same thing. Or how many times we have spoken a harsh or untimely word and deeply wounded another. Maybe somebody we hardly know, maybe the ones we love the most. What internet activity would we prefer be removed? Whether something we've searched for, something we've seen, maybe a social media post that we regret. What things have we done that nobody else knows about? And we would like to, to stay that way. What action or inaction are we most ashamed of? What in our past do we ever find ourselves doubting if it's actually forgivable? Now imagine that there is someone who made a movie out of only those scenes, not your highlight reel, but the opposite, your lowlights, and added to the soundtrack of those scenes, you occasionally notice there's a voice of a narrator. And the only thing they narrate is accusations against you. You can think of it this way. Uh, some of you have been here long enough to remember one of the quirks of the old sound system. Some of the old wires that ran um, from the chancel up here to the sound booth in back were unshielded, meaning they, they kind of functioned like antennas. And uh, there was also a uh, radio tower up the hill not far away that was broadcasting a local station. So you can imagine and some of you remember, sitting in the sanctuary at a quiet part of the service, and suddenly you hear a voice. Maybe it was during the silent confession of sin, you heard what sounded like someone whispering words to you, like maybe you forgot to confess something and they were trying to remind you of it. Maybe at first you thought it was all in your head, but afterwards you find out others were hearing the same thing. Because unbeknownst to you, you were all hearing the exact same broadcaster 
subtly enough that you probably wouldn't have even known where it was coming from if someone had not told you, like I'm kind of doing now. I mention that because in a sense, that's how Satan operates as our accuser. He is constantly broadcasting accusations, and they can come in many forms. Do you ever notice that there can be things in your past, things that you regret, things that you're ashamed of, maybe things that you've confessed and repented of long ago, but the memory of them seems to pop back in your mind like an unannounced visitor at the worst possible times. Maybe they're not even actual sins, uh, but just things that can serve as ammunition for anyone determined to bring you down or to keep you down. And the broadcasts come in the loudest and the clearest when you're feeling the worst, when you're already feeling down, when you're tired, when maybe in some way you have failed again like you have many times before. And so often these are accompanied by accusations and doubts, not only bringing back to mind the things that make you feel awful about yourself, but using them as alleged evidence that you have no value, that you don't measure up, that you can't do anything right, that you're a fool for believing God could ever love someone like you. The reality is, a lot of us are thinking, I don't have to imagine that. That's what I live with all the time. You see, this passage isn't just telling us Zechariah's story or Joshua's story. It's telling us our story. But the way Joshua is shown here actually helps us understand our own situation better. You see, if some chemist could somehow distill all the guilt, all the shame, and, and all of the regret of all of those low-light scenes in our lives, and somehow turn it into a substance, like, like a goo, and then somehow smear it all over our clothes, that's essentially how Joshua is standing there in verse 3, in his filthy clothes, reeking of sin, with his accuser standing by. It's a picture that all of humanity faces. We read in Paul's letter to the Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah writes, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts, even our best efforts stained with mixed motives, are like filthy rags. Coupled with the accusations of Satan, it can be crippling, detrimental in its effects to us. And the reality is we have all felt this to one degree or another. And if that's the problem, if that's our problem, then what's the solution? Well, if the plot line played out like the film Gladiator, you know, the, the solution would simply be you overcome your circumstances by your strength, by your own cunning, your, your own efforts, in order to overcome the evil that is out there. But in this situation, the problem isn't simply some evil out there, but, but an evil that's in here. If the plot line were like one of the Christmas romantic comedies that are cranked out by the dozens or the hundreds this time of year. I've heard some pretty remarkable numbers. And if this were like the scene where boy loses, you know, girl, um, because of a moment where there was this, someone's absolute worst attributes or past decisions are, are revealed, well, what would follow would be some great feat, some demonstration of valor or virtue that demonstrates he's not that bad after all. She's not that bad after all. Or maybe we find out it was all just a big misunderstanding. And so as the story concludes and as the snow begins to fall and the camera zooms out, the sentimental music begins playing and the credits begin to roll. 
that's not how this story goes either. Because Joshua's unpresentable appearance is not a big misunderstanding. And in this story, Joshua doesn't do anything to show himself worthy of love. You see, this is actually a very different kind of story, but I want to argue it's actually a much better one. Because in the end, it doesn't come down to what Joshua does. It comes down to what's done for him. You see, Satan wanted Joshua and all he represents to be condemned, laid into, put into his place. And in verse 1, Satan is ready to go with the accusations. But instead, it's the accuser, Satan, who comes under fire, who gets put into his place. We read in verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And why? Well, not because of what Joshua had done, but because of what the Lord had done. And what was that? Just look at verse 2. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. You see, Jerusalem and all that she represented had been chosen by the Lord, and not because of her greatness, and not because of her innocence, not because of her goodness, but because of the Lord's goodness. Verse 2 goes on to say, Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So what's that about? Uh, well, Joshua and the rest of those who are dwelling again in the land had just returned from exile in Babylon. And why were they in exile to begin with? Those of you who are in the adult Sunday school class know it's, it's because of Israel's repeated generational unrepentant sin. Yeah, Satan had a lot of ammo to use to accuse them. Nobody in this scene is denying the reality of people's sins. But as we read in the first chapter of Zechariah, the people of this generation had repented. They had turned back to their God. And in response, the Lord, who had already chosen them, has now delivered them. He has snatched them from the fire of judgment in Babylon and brought them back into the land. You see, when people repent and the Lord forgives them and restores them, when that verdict has already been rendered, no accusation can overturn his ruling on your life. And so when Satan comes to try to accuse him, he doesn't even get a word out. We don't see any words from Satan in this passage. Satan, the accuser, is silenced by the Lord. There is no double jeopardy for those who have turned to the Lord in faith and repentance, whom the Lord has already delivered them from the penalty of their sin. And as much as that's good news for Joshua and good news for us, that's not even the half of it here. Look at verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. See, Joshua's filthy clothes, symbolic of his sin, have been taken away. And in their place, he has been given rich garments, or as another translation puts it, pure vestments, symbolic of a new righteousness imputed to Joshua. The one who stood unclean before the Lord is given a clean turban on his head, an, an image with overtones of glory and royalty, just as God calls his redeemed people a royal priesthood and a holy nation. It's a sign of acceptance of him and those that he represents. It's a picture of the forgiveness 
of God's people. And all the accuser can do is watch as his accusations are silenced, and right before his eyes, the reason for his accusation is removed and replaced, the clean for the unclean, the pure for the impure, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's Joshua's story, but it's also our story, the story of the subjects of Satan's accusations seeing him silenced. The story of us and our uncleanness being made clean by the act, by the gift of another. It is not the ending Satan would have seen coming, and, and frankly, it's maybe not the ending you would have seen coming either, any of us, if we had to make this up. And when something happens in a story that we do not expect, that alters the story in such a profound way, we have a name for that, a plot twist. But what really makes a great twist isn't just something happening that's different than you expected, but the scenes that follow that explain why that happened, and that shows you how the unexpected is actually possible. And that's what we find here in Zechariah 3. Not just a problem, not just a solution, but an amazing twist. The beauty of a good twist is that it makes you go back to the beginning of the story and reconsider something that you might have missed. You notice that the angel of the Lord here is essentially claiming the right to forgive sins. It likely would have jarred the people of Zechariah's day the first time they heard this read. It would have left them asking the same question that it should leave us asking, the same question uh, that people were asking in Jesus' day. Who can forgive sin but God alone? The angel of the Lord does what only God can do because he is God. More specifically, a pre-incarnate, a pre-Christmas Jesus Christ. It's a sneak preview of the one who came that first Christmas and what he would do. Taking away our sin and our uncleanness. Clothing us in a righteousness that comes from outside of us. Silencing our accuser and defending us as his chosen people. Jesus Christ, who triumphs over our greatest accuser by being our greater advocate, our greater defender. And how is it possible? Look at verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. What's to come? I am going to bring my servant the branch. You see, the one who was to come, the one that the high priest and his associates were symbolic of, would also be a priest. The one referred to here as my servant uh, the branch, and, which is an Old Testament title for the Messiah. In Joshua's day, the one who was supposed to advocate for God's people uh, was the priest, and especially the high priest. They were to help purify sinners by presenting their offerings before God. But over the centuries, the priesthood had become a mess, a wreck, and would be so in even more profound ways by the time of Jesus, when all of the chief priests would conspire to have him killed. But the coming one, the one called the branch, would be a priest himself, and yet more than a priest, better than anyone before, one that would do what Joshua the high priest and no other priest and none of us could ever do, not simply offering an animal as a sacrifice to atone for the people's sins, but actually able to offer himself. As we read in Hebrews chapter 9, he, meaning Jesus, entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. 
He was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the one who would ultimately deal with people's sin to secure eternal life for them. As we read in, in verse 9 here in Zechariah, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And some 500 years later, on the day that Jesus Christ went to the cross, we see God making good on his promise for all of those who would trust in him. You see, unlike other priests, Jesus' offering wouldn't have had to include something for his own sin because he had no sin. He, he was the perfect high priest. And where Satan is quick to blame, to, to condemn because of a person's own sin and failings, Jesus had none. He was bulletproof in that sense. And the way that he acts as our advocate is this. He takes his own spotless record, his own pure vestments, if you will, and exchanges them with us, taking our filthy clothes, our sin-stained record, upon himself. The things that Satan seeks to accuse us of so that they would be condemned, ultimately do get condemned, as Jesus bears them on the cross. And in turn, Jesus bestows his own pure vestments, his perfect, sinless record upon his followers, clothing them in his righteousness, what theologians call the great exchange. And so when Satan tries to accuse us, to condemn us because of, of our already forgiven sin, Jesus, our advocate, stands up and says, Objection, your honor. This case has already been tried. Their sins have already been paid for on the cross. I know the debt has been paid because I paid it myself. It would be unjust to ask that it be paid again, condemned again. There is no double jeopardy in my father's world. Case dismissed. You see, when Satan accuses, Jesus, our advocate, comes to our defense. There is no double jeopardy in our father's world. Not only defending us on the basis of his mercy, but on the basis of his justice. And he never tires of pleading your case. No matter how often Satan tries to accuse you, Jesus' heart for justice won't allow him to give up on you and stop pleading your case. When Satan or our own doubts accuse us, Jesus speaks a better word, a better word, and nobody can overrule his judgment. Friends, when we come to him in repentance, trusting in our great high priest's sacrifice on our behalf, he does the same for us that we see him doing for Joshua here. And as relieved as the one in Zechariah's vision would have been, the book of Hebrews asks us, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death. All so that we can join in the words of the scripture reading you heard earlier, the words of Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As the bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And if you, as God's people, whom Scripture refers to as the bride of Christ, if you this morning are having a hard time hearing that, because the accuser's voice is still so prominent in your ear, 
then try this on for size. Uh, years ago, when I was in seminary, part of my, my job then uh, was to get uh, wedding guests to quiet down so people can hear toasts and speeches. And in doing so, I learned a little trick. For most crowds, I could just say, ladies and gentlemen, if you would please direct your undivided attention to the head table, and they quiet down and you know, drop the volume a little decibels, and usually works. Some occasions, though, with a little rowdier crowd and maybe a very live room with, with hard walls and glass and no carpeting, you need to be a little more persuasive. So I would do this. Ladies and gentlemen, please take a moment to turn to the person on your left and say, There's nothing quite like the sound of 200 people shushing you in a crowd to get you to quiet down. But it's a trick we did not use very much because apparently people generally don't like to be shushed. Um, it carries kind of a shame because it's, it's kind of telling people, you don't get to talk right now. Shh. And it puts them in their place which is why it's the perfect response to the voice of your accuser. I can't tell you how many times a thought has come to my mind that doesn't belong there. Maybe a voice of doubt. Uh, maybe a scene from my own life that I'd rather forget that starts replaying in my mind. The kind of thing that the accuser would want me to dwell on, to bring me down. Well, in James 4, verse 7, it says, Resist the devil, and he will flee you. So when it happens, I've learned to simply say, shh, and it goes away. Not because I put him in his place, but because long ago, Jesus did. And maybe he just needed a reminder. And what Jesus did on that cross, on Calvary's hill, paved the way for what he would do on the day of his return, the day that we look forward to now, as we read on in Hebrews chapter 9, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, which he already did the first time, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When not only the penalty of sin, but even the pollution of sin is taken away. A time when the images at the end of Zechariah 3, images of, of peace and security will finally come in their fullness when all things, including us, are finally made new. Let me uh, just share you one more story. It's about a little boy who accidentally kills his grandmother's pet duck. He accidentally did the deed with uh, a rock from a slingshot, and maybe he didn't quite think it would hit. The boy didn't think anybody saw the deed, and so he buried the duck in the backyard and didn't tell a soul. But later, he found out that his sister had seen it all. Some of you have siblings, and you know what comes next. So she now had the leverage of his secret and used it. Whenever it was the sister's turn to wash the dishes, take out the garbage, wash the car, all she had to do was whisper into her brother's ear, remember the duck. 
and the little boy would do whatever his sister should have done. Some of you as siblings might also know there's a limit to this sort of thing. Finally, he had had it. The boy went to his grandmother, and, and, and with great fear, he confessed all that he had done. And to his surprise, she hugged him and thanked him. And she said, I was standing at the kitchen sink, and I saw the whole thing. I forgave you then. I was just wondering when you were going to get tired of your sister's blackmail and come to me. <laughs> Friends, are you tired? Jesus invites you, saying, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'm the one who can deal with the accuser who's been trying to mess with you, blackmail you. I've already seen you at your worst and I purchase your forgiveness in light of it so that you can come to me in confession with confidence to approach my throne of grace. On the cross, I've already moved your judgment day from the future to the past so that you can stand before me clothed in a righteousness that only I can give you, not only as forgiven, but as righteous in my sight. So friends, when the accuser comes to you with some version of remember the duck, you remember the cross. Friends, our accuser is great, but our advocate, Jesus Christ, is far greater. And as he came once, he'll come again. And in the meantime, he gives us his word to show us what he has already promised, what he has already done as a down payment on what he will do when he comes again, so that the awe of what he's already accomplished, what we've already talked about today, would grow our anticipation of what's still yet to come. The trailer's great, but the feature-length film is going to be awesome. That's Joshua's story. That's our story. That's the story of Advent. Let me pray for us.